Today we're in our third week in our study of Nehemiah. The Sunday after Easter we'll begin digging into Nehemiah chapter one, but we're still putting down the groundwork to prepare ourselves to make the most out of this. And so we're gonna be in the book of Ezekiel, the 37th chapter. You may have never read much of Ezekiel, but many of us would know this account of the vision of the valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Ezekiel lived and prophesied in the Babylonian era the 70 years of exile in which the children of Israel dwelled outside of the promised land. The temple has been destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem have been destroyed. The altar has been destroyed. And so for those 70 years, no sacrifice was made. Why is that so important? Because the sacrifice was everything to the nation of Israel. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There absence from the promised land was not just a reminder of their moral failure, it was a reminder of their spiritual judgment by God. As Ezekiel writes, it was as though we are dried up and cast out. Ezekiel pulls no punches 
in reminding them why they are where they are. But then this image that no matter how desperate their situation, and that message is for us today, no matter how dark your life is, even by your own choices, there is no circumstance from which God cannot resurrect you. (laughs) Ezekiel speaks to the hope that the people of Israel have that God would rebuild and restore. He speaks in great detail about what the temple will look like and its altar and the rebuilding of the walls of the city. And that is what we see fulfilled in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra is about the temple and the altar being rebuilt. The king allows the people of Israel to return, and the first thing they do is build the altar before they even begin building the temple. Why is the altar that important? In fact, they have a great celebration, and there has not yet been a brick laid to rebuild the temple or the city. Why the altar first? Because it was everything. It was atonement. It was redemption. It was their means of having their sins forgiven, their relationship with God restored, and their shame removed. You see, the altar for the children of Israel is the equivalent to the cross for you and me today. In fact, the altar is the primary metaphor in the Old Testament for the cross, the true Lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. And in the same way, the gospel for us is the launching point. It is the most important thing. It is the grounding. If you take everything else away from us, we still start at the gospel. We still start at the cross and the forgiveness of sins and the life that is ours in Christ. And so that is true of the nation of Israel. They, they build the altar and they revel in the forgiveness. And then they lay the foundation for the temple. The foundation and the altar are all laid within the first year, but it takes 20 years for Israel to complete the temple. And it's mostly because they were distracted making beautiful homes, setting up their own comfort to the point where seeing the foundation there is sort of like me with my kitchen project. After a while, it just looks right, even though it's not finished. You know how that is? Our first house uh, that we owned in Massachusetts, uh, my kitchen was a 12-year project that my wife reminds me I finished just before we put a for sale sign on it. There was even a time when there were no doors on a couple of the cabinets because they were so destroyed, and it just was normal. You know, you can lose focus when life happens, and that's largely what happened to the nation of Israel. They drifted away from the reason that God had brought them there in the first place, drifted away by their own lives, their own priorities, their own comforts. But God uses Haggai and Zechariah as prophets to exhort them to get down to business. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua get back to work in leading the people, and finally, 20 years in, they complete the temple. But even though the temple is completed, the people are still disobedient. This is a recurring theme here. 
This happens right up until the end of Nehemiah. The Old Testament constantly reminds us that if people are left to their own devices, they will always drift towards their own priorities rather than God's. Contrast the doctrine of free will and the sovereignty of God. Do I believe in free will? Of course I do. But every time we exercise it, we blow it. That's the doctrine of free will. Left to ourselves, we will always go the path of our moral brokenness. And that's why we need God's sovereignty. Because without God's faithfulness to us, his plan would never be fulfilled. Now why, once they got the temple set up and they had all their rituals and all their sacred practices and they had the altar which remind them of sin and forgiveness, why even then, once that is set up, and they understand their history, that they had lost it because of their disobedience. Why, after all that, did it just take 40 years for them to drift so far away? Why, when they have everything they need in place? The answer is because they don't have everything they need. You see, the church is never the full work of God. When we focus on just making sure we have a great building and we have our traditions and our weekly services and our life groups, when we focus on having this great and vibrant institution known as the Journey Community Church, if we think that's all that we're supposed to do, we're missing the full mission of God. And like the children of Israel, when we get so closed in, we will drift. Even church will become something about our own comfort and our own prosperity. Because it was never just about the temple. There's more to be done. And that's why God brings Ezra to the land four decades after the temple is completed in order to prepare God's people again. (laughs) What a gracious and good and persistent God that he comes back again and he makes them ready for the rest of the work. And what we're gonna see in Nehemiah is the restoration of the wall. It's a great part of the story. It's actually one of the best stories in the Bible as far as plot and tension and bravery. It's it's gonna be a great story to study, but it's only the first half of the book. Because once the wall is finished, the civilization, the culture of the city, is brought back to God. So the telling of Ezra and Nehemiah is God bringing the people who through their own means had lost the promised land out of his graciousness and in order to fulfill his sovereign plan back to the promised land and to restore three things, the temple, the city, and the people. And that's how big God's mission is for his people. Our mission is bigger than the health and vitality of our organization. How selfish could we be if we come into this city, if we come to this space, and it makes no difference in the city around us? God's mission is bigger than that. What I want to do is show you that timeline that Paul showed us two weeks ago to help you get a sense of the span of time that this is. 70 years from the exile to the return, 20 years from the return to the completion of the temple, and then 70 more years, 70 more years before Nehemiah comes, 
and the work of God continues. So that's 160 years. That's generations. Do you understand that? Think about this. Israelites were born, lived, and died in exile. In the promised land, children were born, lived, and died. Their children lived and died, and God was still enacting his great plan. Our tendency as Americans to individualize our spirituality and to think in terms of God's plan only in the span of the years that we live is one of the most short-sighted tendencies that we have. Yeah, God cares about your life, but God operates on a much bigger scale. So what I want to do is to talk about some of these big ideas that are reaffirmed in the book of Nehemiah. The first is God's faithfulness to his people in spite of their perpetual failures. If that isn't a story of your and my life, what is? It's the story of Scripture. The more you understand the Old Testament, the more you realize there are no heroes. There's people like you and me. And it's God's faithfulness to us in spite of our perpetual failures that both today and in the time of Nehemiah make sure that God's plans come to pass. You see, we need a faithful God. We need a God who is not discouraged and disappointed in us when in learning to walk spiritually, we take our first couple of steps and we fall flat on our butts. Just like our kids. You know, if my son, when he took his first couple of steps, fell on his butt and sat there and went, that's it, I'm never gonna walk. And if we said, that's right, you blew it. But we all need a faithful father who loves his children enough to pick them up and wipe the dust off their diaper (laughs) and say, well, let's try for three steps this time. You see, we need a faithful God who calls us to obedience, not out of fear or guilt, but calls us to do better because we are loved. And nothing will change that love. If any story in the Bible reminds us that once God has chosen and called us his children, he is faithful to it. It is the story of the children of Israel, and it is underscored in the story of Nehemiah. Israel is no more deserving of the promised land now than when they were in Babylon, and God is faithful to them and to his purposes. Another thing we see about God is his sovereign working out of his will over generations and on a global scale. This is something we need to get in on. We need to stop seeing our life as the sum total of what we want to see God do. How small-minded is that? How limited is that? God wants to invite you to be part of something that's epic and eternal and will transcend your life. The work will not be done, but by all means, let's do our part. Let's write our part in God's story. And not only is it a story that transcends generations, God moves on a global level, turns the hearts of the most powerful men in the world when he intends to accomplish his purposes and will. So whoever ends up in the White House, God can work his will. He is not thwarted by it. And he doesn't need 
any particular candidate in the office. That's not what the sermon's about, so I'm not going to say any more. God is sovereignly at work, so he's changing the hearts of kings even as he's inclining the humble heart of pilgrims to say, yes, I'm in on this adventure. And then the third thing we see is God's unstoppable commitment to his plan for redeeming the human race. You say, well, Tom, how do we see that here? Well, you see, God's relationship with Israel is a foreshadowing of his ultimate solution for the whole human race. So when God establishes Israel back in the promised land, he sets the stage for the ultimate act of redemption. Think about this. Israel goes back to the land. They have their temple again. They have eventually their walls again. The city is healthy, secure. They are renewed spiritually. And as far as what we can understand, when the story of Nehemiah ends, we enter into four silent centuries. And then in the Gospels, what we see is that finally Israel has stayed faithful. (laughs) After all this time of fickleness and failing, finally this last act of spiritual renewal that we're going to study in Nehemiah sets Israel on a course that when Jesus comes... There is a temple, there is a people devoted to worshiping the one true God, there is no longer any idolatry. There is a city that can be identified as the city of God, but yet there is one thing missing at the end of Nehemiah. The temple, the city, the consecrated people, and they're missing one thing. You know what it is? It's a king. There's no king to rule in Jerusalem. The line of David has apparently been cut off. While they are in the land, they are servants of a foreign king, and they would be that throughout the centuries as kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And by the time Jesus is born, Israel is under the mighty hand of Rome. You see, there's no king. There's no king. So what stage is set in bringing the children of Israel back to the promised land? I'll tell you what he set the stage for. Right here, Zechariah saw it. And we're celebrating it today. Let's say this good and loud. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey's colt. Do you see it? 170 years to get here, and then 400 more years God working out his plan, the stage set. Why do you think on that Palm Sunday so many people came out rejoicing and embracing Jesus as their Messiah? Because that had become the focus. They had everything else. God had been gracious to them, had set them back up in his holy city, but they were without a king. 
And the prophets were looking for a Messiah, a Christ who would come. And Zechariah knew how he would come. And when Jesus came in and they shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, do you understand what they were actually shouting? We think Hosanna is sort of like hallelujah, (laughs) glory to God. It's a word of praise, isn't it? No. No, Hosanna means deliver us. Save us. You know what the palm stood for on that Palm Sunday? You see, because they were not acknowledged as a nation, they were not allowed to bear arms and bear colors. The Roman colors stood over the city of Jerusalem. So the palms became their national symbol. So them waving palms would be the same as us on Independence Day, standing out, watching the parade, and waving all of our flags, made in China, but American flags. (laughs) It was a patriotic gathering, and they dared to believe that Jesus was finally the answer. Why was that moment possible? Four centuries ago, God put events in motion by His sovereign persistence and his grace that made sure that there would be a triumphal entry. There would be a king who would be offered and he would be a sacrificial lamb. Did you know that on the day of the week that was the triumphal entry in the Passover celebration, did you know that that was the day that every family in Israel chose their lamb chose their sacrifice, and then they stayed with that animal for the rest of the week. They brought it into the home. They would pet it, put their hands on it in such a way as to place their sins on the lamb. And then on the day of sacrifice, all of those Passover lambs would be killed. But it was the day Jesus entered Jerusalem that they chose their lamb. Think about that. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God was offering His Lamb for their choosing. And whether they understood it or not, when they hung Him on a cross, they had chosen Him. You see how God's purposes are never thwarted by man's intentions. From the mighty to the lowly, God's plan continues. What I want to do now is give you a very important interpretive key that we're going to come back to over and over again. And that's going to help us see our story in the story of Nehemiah. God's plan and therefore our mission. Ezra and Nehemiah remind us about three things that God reestablishes. So let me go through them again. First of all, he rebuilds the temple and the altar. He restores the walls. And then finally, he renews the people, the civilization that would preserve these practices until the coming of Christ. So his purpose was not completed in just the building of the temple any more than God's mission and purposes for us is completed in the health and vitality of our Christian community, our mission in our city is as big as God's mission and purposes. So let me lay that out for you. The temple represents for us the church. 
In fact, Peter refers to us as the temple of God. We are spiritual stones being built into a spiritual household, the dwelling place of God. And like the temple and the altar, which is about redemption, the church is built on the person of Christ. At the heart is the gospel and the cross. And so the church is part of God's mission, but it's not the only part of God's mission. If we're just focused on that, then we are drifting spiritually towards our own self-centered comfort. See, it's more than that. There's the second. The restoring of the walls is about the city. It's about the health and the vibrancy and the stability of the civil structure in which the church thrives. And then the renewal of the people within the city is about the culture. A renewal, a revival of the culture. We want our mission to be God's mission. And God's mission is about the church, the city, and the culture. And we're going to see how God accomplished that in Jerusalem as a means of being inspired to see God accomplish it today. And when the church really gets its act together and joins in on God's plan, all of these things are elevated and restored. Let me give you some examples. During the Great Awakening of the late 1700s, early 1800s, we look back on that season with great sentimentality. And we think of it as a time of spiritual experience, churches being packed, but in fact, Mostly it was outside the walls of the church. And it also drove Christians to work for the good of their cities. Did you know that? The Great Awakening drove Christians to get involved in creating education for the masses. Did you know that Sunday school, in its origin, was not teaching children just Bible stories? Sunday school actually was school. The poor did not have education available to them. So they came to church on Sundays and they actually learned to read. Did you know that? Evangelicals taught cities to read. Temperance leagues grew out of the Great Awakening. A church on fire for God reached out to addicts in their society and offered them hope. There was prison reform. There were anti-poverty programs. Wealthy men in Christian churches created their own banking systems because the poor in their city did not have access to banks. And did you know the very first macro loan programs came out of the Great Awakening? Business in providing money to the poor in their city who could not otherwise get financing. And as a result, a whole demographic was elevated in their living. This was the Great Awakening. It wasn't just about people on their faces vibrating to the presence of God. That accomplishes nothing if the city isn't transformed. Do you understand what I'm saying? We call revivals mystical experiences in our four walls. When God really revives us, our cities are transformed. Did you know that the Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was started as a result of the Great Awakening? Did you know that slavery was abolished in England because of the Great Awakening? Civil rights were part of the agenda 
of a church that was on fire for the kingdom. Do you understand what I'm saying? If we really want God to move here, it's gonna move us out, and we're gonna work for the good of our city, and then that's gonna result in a bringing the power and the transforming work of God to the whole culture, and that's what happened. The cultures where the Great Awakenings occurred were transformed. Let me give you some example. In the Welsh Revival, so many dock workers were convicted about having stolen tools that all of a sudden tools just started showing up back on the docks. They had more tools than they could use. Why? Because God was pricking the hearts of of men. In the Irish Revival, brothels went out of business. (laughs) Prostitutes started going to church One reporter from England went and asked some of the prostitutes, why are you going to church? And they said, well, for one thing, business is down. (laughs) And secondly, these people treat us like people. During the Great Awakening, wherever cities were transformed by Christians who were on fire for God, crime decreased. Society decreased was renewed. Are you catching what I'm saying here? This is what God's called us to, and no less. And this is what this study gives us an opportunity to come face to face with, so that this city that we love can become God's city, where the city of God can flourish in this city of man. We have our own version of dry bones in Worcester. I remember years ago coming into the Galleria downtown. How many of you have been here long enough to know the Galleria? By the time I came, it had become an outlet mall because the big stores couldn't survive. Vanity Fair outlet, jeans for 50%, and eventually the only thing left were dollar stores. It was taken down. That big hole in the center of the city really speaks the story of Worcester in some ways. We love the city of Worcester, but you know, cities are meant to make suburbs thrive. Suburbs surround cities because the cities are the source of life. It's been a long time since that was true of Worcester. The suburbs treat Worcester as a missionary project. Now, we know God's always been at work, and there's Plenty of things to love in this city. Did you know that U.S. News & World Report listed Worcester now in the top 100 cities to live in America? Number 67. The third best in New England, only behind Boston and Portland. Bones are rattling. You know that building that's happening downtown? We see that as a metaphor for what God wants to do in this city. Do you believe dead bones can walk? Do you believe cities can become healthy just because God's people show up? I do. History shows it, and Nehemiah proves it. Ezekiel finishes his book with this verse. Last words in Ezekiel's vision of the restoration of Jerusalem. Say this with me. The name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. The Lord is there.
Father, would that that would be said of Worcester, that people would see this city and see the city of God, transformed city, and then ultimately a transformed culture where people say, the Lord is there. Lord, use this study in order to prepare us to be used to that end, but not just us, Father, because we're only a piece of it. Would you please renew your whole church in this city in these days so that the stirring that we see economically and socially will stir a great spiritual revival? In Jesus' name, amen.